All right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today I'm just doing a, a quick little uh, short video follow-up on the great God debate that I did with uh, Jordan the Atheist, David Johnson the Atheist, and uh, fellow Christian Travis Worth uh, a couple nights ago on Saturday night. And uh, this video, I'm going to be doing a follow-up with Phil Bear and the two atheists later tonight. But uh, this uh, is going to be just a short video on the ontological argument. And I'm going to be responding uh, to some of the things that uh, came up during the informal discussion and rebuttal section uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, the good news is having re-listened to it, I think I did I did okay. There was just, I think, a couple, one or two things at most that I wanted to kind of clarify better. For example, giving a better response to the no-no uh, argument that um, Jordan gave. But with that said, uh, I'm going to get straight into it. So let's uh, watch the five-minute rebuttal from Jordan, and then I'm going to give the uh, response, and uh, David contributes as well. But let me share my screen here with you peeps. All right, and it's up on the screen. All righty. So, all right, so let's uh, have a listen to the rebuttal uninterrupted first. Over to the atheists for their five-minute rebuttal. Five minutes, let me pull out my timer so I don't go over. Okay, so... Uh, as we were talking beforehand uh, with Dale, this is my least favorite argument from theists, but I'm going to do my best to address it anyway. Uh, so I, I don't know that I would necessarily agree that God uh, is logically necessary. That's a coherent concept, but I understand that's the definition that the Christians are putting forward. Obviously, if I thought God was logically necessary, then I'd be a theist. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do think that there's a little bit of, uh, uh, in the rejection of the necessarily existent lion, uh, Dale said that that doesn't work because lions are contingent. Well, sure, most lions are contingent, but not this one. This one's special. It's logically necessary. Why? Because I said so. Because that's a definition. Because I've put forward this definition. Why did the Christian get to put forward a definition we just have to accept, but this logically necessary lion, it's it's not allowed? Why? By, by what but by what virtue would you do it? Do I not to get to have that same right? Right. Uh, not that I'm making that a thing, but I don't think that's a good objection. Um, mainly, I think just because something's logically possible uh, in some logically possible world that doesn't mean it's like actually possible like in the real world that logical possibility doesn't um, entail uh actual possibility um it may be possible that it's possible right but we don't know that it is in fact actually possible uh it's conceivable at least to me that a, de a deity could be necessary in one world but not necessary in all worlds I, I, it would depend on the features of those worlds right um by putting in your definition that it is a real maximally great being that could conceivably vastly limit what your god could be because you're now you're saying whatever the maximum features can be in reality well i don't know what those maximum features are in reality they may be very very far short of the god described in the bible i don't know what they are uh but i i think that by just saying well it's real and it's maximally great your the mind is naturally going towards the god described in various religions but that may not be coherent right but leaving all that aside, let's just say that the logic of the argument is sound and everything works. It's great. Okay. Let's work it in reverse. Let's imagine that there is that it's logically possible 
that there is someone in some possible universe that knows God does not exist. Let's call it a no-no, okay? This no-no knows that God doesn't exist in their possible world. And if they know that God doesn't exist, then that means God doesn't exist there in order to have knowledge that, that the thing you believe must be true, right? But if God is logically necessary, it's a logically necessary being, it must exist in all possible worlds, but it can't exist in the world where the no-no exists since it can't exist there, can't exist anywhere. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Now, it seems like this is based on the exact same logic as the modal ontological argument. It doesn't seem any more or less plausible on its face as that one. I don't see any particular reason why we should prefer to allow a logically necessary deity versus this person who just has one feature that they know God doesn't exist. So it doesn't seem like there's any compelling reason to prefer one or the other. They both seem to work off the same logic, and yet they are in direct contradiction to the to each other. They cannot both simultaneously be true. And so, if for no re if the logic allows for two simultaneous arguments that are mutually exclusive, then the argument clearly doesn't work. Um, that's only three and a half minutes. David, do you have anything you want to throw in? You're muted. Yeah, damn you for taking uh, away the only note that I took uh, on on this. So. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that my biggest objection to the argument is lack of definition. Uh, maximal, it's it's much too vague. As was stated, maximal doesn't mean omni. It doesn't mean all. It just means the most that's possible in that setting. And so what is the maximum amount of good that a being can have? A human could have the maximum amount of good that it's possible for a being to have. We don't even need to posit a god. A human could have the maximum amount of power that a being could have. And so you're not actually defining how much knowledge and how much power and how much good uh, your God is by using the word maximal. Uh, and so I would say that maximal is a minimal definition that allows you to import a lot of things in it uh, that still have to be sorted out. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks. Uh, yeah. Travis, I, I don't mind just getting your take quickly as well. Well, um, yeah. So I, I think that's a, it's a really good argument and I really appreciate, you know, I think the valuable insights, I think you've got some good feedback. I was just thinking what would what, have been really good is to sort of lay out Josh Rasmussen's uh, argument for, you know, like a perfect foundation that's purely actual with no arbitrary limits. And, um, but it's, it's kind of up to you to defend it. So I'll, I'll see what you go with. Yeah, no, and, and no, you're on my team. You're allowed to join in and defend it as well if you've got something to say. So, all right, cool. So I think at this point we can open it up to kind of an informal discussion for the next uh, for the next little bit until the one hour mark, and then we can move on. So, all right, all right. So that's the first clip. So there's our there's kind of the rebuttals that they provided. And I'll just uh, stop sharing my screen for a second. Um, so I uh, just want to respond to each of these things here. Okay, so the first objection, uh, we did kind of get to deal with this in the debate, as you'll see. So I, I think we got it to a satisfying thing, but it's this notion that Jordan said he thinks that something's being logically necessary in and of itself is incoherent. And I will admit that if that's true, then this would defeat my modal ontological argument because it would say that it's not possible. The first premise in the argument is wrong. It's not possible for a real maximally great being to exist because part of the definition 
for being a real maximum great being is that you are logically necessary, meaning you exist in every single logically possible world where the laws of logic obtain or are true. So if this is true, now the problem is it, it's not true. Uh, no atheist in the world can prove that something's being logically necessary is incoherent. In fact, it's provably the opposite and self-evidently so. I mean, there's nothing about the laws of logic existing in every single possible world um, and then having a real maximum great being existing in every single logically possible world. Um, I don't see why there's anything that would prevent or make it a contradiction in terms, um, supposing that, yeah, a, a real maximum great being can exist in every single world where the laws of logic are true. That's that's perfectly coherent. So the, lack, the inability of the atheist to prove that there's any kind of incoherence or contradiction in these two things being true, the laws of logic being true, and the existence of God or a real maximum great being speaks against this objection. Now, I will be fair. Later on in the show, uh, around the 36-minute mark, which we'll see in a bit, Jordan does admit, well, hey, I'm not I'm not actually going to claim that. He backs down and and says, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm kind of, epistemically speaking, I'm agnostic um, as to whether it's coherent or incoherent. And fair enough. If he, he doesn't know, he doesn't know. I can't speak to what's inside his head. But I would just say that for most rational logicians, philosophers, experts, people that think hard about this, there is nothing incoherent about positing uh, a necessary existing God let alone a necessary existent thing in general. I mean, the most mathematicians and scientists believe that mathematics are logically necessary. One plus one equals two in every single logically possible world. That's perfectly coherent. That's not an incoherent concept. Now, uh, we dealt, I think, with that adequately in the debate. And again, Jordan did kind of backtrack a little bit on that and, and say, well, I, I don't want to make the claim that something's being logically necessary is incoherent. So I I think that objection has been satisfactorily dealt with. His now Jordan's second objection, uh, he kind of took me to task based on the necessarily existent lion. So this is a type of parody where you say, well, posit X, Y, or Z, like a lion, for example, and then just say, well, it's a necessarily existent lion. And if, it, if it's possible that a necessarily existent lion, given axiom S5 modal logic and premises two through five in my ontological argument, that would mean that, yeah, th this lion does exist in every logically possible world. And I just said, but that doesn't make sense because lions are contingent. So therefore, they're not logically necessary. Um, and then Jordan's response to this was, yeah, but this is a special lion. He's an exception to the rule. He's not a normal lion. So it's, it's just this arbitrary thing. But I think on this front, Jordan is missing the fact that, look, you there is no such thing as a necessarily existent line by essence, because the essence, right, the, the kind nature of a lion, meaning all of the essential properties of a lion, include its being contingent. Because part of being a lion by essence is that you have a body governed by the lion genome. If you don't have a body, physical body governed by the lion genome, you're not, by definition, you're not a lion. You're something else. And that's the reason I ex you can't posit a necessarily existent line because 
By definition, lines are contingent. They have physical bodies that can only exist in certain conditions. They, they aren't necessary. They don't exist in all possible worlds where the laws of logic obtain. There are possible worlds, logically possible worlds, where just space exists. Lions, by definition, can't exist there with bodies governed by the lion genome. So therefore, they're not necessary. It's, it's equivalent to a contradiction. You're, you're trying to say, well, it's possible that a necessary, um, necessary thing, necessary contingent thing exists. No, you're either necessary or you're contingent and that sort of thing. So, yeah, lines are contingent upon very specific fact, factual parameters in order to live because by essence they have physical bodies governed by the lion genome. So that's my objection to there there are no special exceptions. What what Jordan is really trying to say is it's just not a line. He's he's trying to posit something else, a necessarily existent being of some kind maybe. But again, that's that's not relevant. That's a different parody than saying a necessarily existent lion and that's what was brought up in the show. So that's how I would refute that. If, if Jordan wants to posit a different parody, it's, well, maybe there's a necessarily existent spiritual being or a Satan. Great. That's a different parody. And we have a different refutation for that. But in the point, the point is in the debate, I brought up the example of necessarily existent lion and that by essence is contingent. Um, it, it is not necessary by definition. Um, so, so yeah, there are no exceptions to the um essential properties that something has to have in order to be a lion you can't just say well there's a lion that's not a lion that doesn't make sense okay um thirdly um jordan also says just because something's a lot so i misunderstood this in the show i thought he was objecting to premise three the deductive strength of premise three and appealing to what's called counterpart or world-bound individual theory Whereas my premise three assumes trans world identity. Now, Jordan, later on in the clip, Jordan says, no, that's not what he's talking about. So um, his objection here, from what I got, just because something's logically possible does not entail that it's actually possible or metaphysically possible or factually possible. And I would totally agree with that. But my argument doesn't care because my, my argument in the first premise it's not assuming that something's because something's logically possible that this entails that it's actually possible. That's or even factually possible. The argument proves that through deductive logical inferences between all of the premises, right? So it, it starts off with logical possibility. Unicorns are logically possible, but that doesn't entail that they, they actually are possible. Um, in a metaphysical sense, great, that's, that's true. Or that they're factually possible. Again, that, that's true, right? In our universe, unicorns don't exist. The facts of our, the relevant facts of our universe have precluded the existence of unicorns. You know, the facts of evolutionary history and all of that, they haven't produced unicorns. But they're still logically possible to exist, and I would argue even metaphysically possible. There, there's no metaphysical contradiction or incoherence in supposing that a horse with a horn on it could exist. Um, yeah, unicorns are uh, logically possible and metaphysically possible, even if they're not factually possible in this universe, given all of the relevant facts, including facts 
pertinent to the evolutionary history of our particular planet and universe. So what? My argument doesn't assume this at all. It, it proves from the logical possibility that that in logically entails the equivalent conclusion that this God actually does exist. And therefore, that if something is um, that, therefore, this entails the factual possibility of the existence of God as well. But that that is logically derived. Uh, let me just bring up actually the slides just so I'm not speaking abstractly. Um, okay, so, so here's the premises, right? So that's, that's the function of premises three and three through five is to get it into the actual world from the fact that it exists in some logically possible world. So there, there is no assumption here. I, the, the objection just doesn't uh, hold any water in my personal opinion, because this is an argument, right? The, that's the whole point of Axiom S5. You couldn't plug in a unicorn here, right? I, I would agree if you say, well, premise one, it's logically possible that a unicorn exists. Yeah, unicorns are contingent beings by definition, just like a lion. They're not logically necessary by definition. And therefore, you, you can't argue, well, then it exists in every single possible world, that if it exists in every single possible world, it exists in the actual world, therefore unicorns exist. No, it's just totally irrelevant. So yeah, this objection doesn't do anything in my opinion. Um, okay, so uh, moving on, uh, the next objection that I wanted to deal with from Jordan here is my favorite one. Um, oh, okay, never mind. sorry, nope. The next objection was brought up by both Jordan and David, and it's the fact that they say, well, when you talk about the maximal calm possible degree of power, knowledge, and benevolence that this thing has, it's left undefined, undefined or unspecified, I guess, quantitatively. I guess they want a number or something like that. Um, and because of that, they're saying, well, it's too vague. We don't know what to make of it. And maybe this thing is inconsistent with the Bible's description, which says that he's got the, the maximal degree and stuff like that. Maybe, so in other, in other words, they're trying to say, because you leave it unspecified, what the maximal compossible degree of power, knowledge, and benevolence is, let's say it's level six, just six out of 10 is the maximal compossible degree, just for the sake of argument. Uh, what David and Jordan said is, well, maybe the Bible teaches that God has level seven out of 10. Therefore, seven is inconsistent with your argument because your argument can only prove they have this level six or something like that out of 10. But this is just, number one, I can just easily say, yeah, but that's, you have no proof that it does say that. Because again, the argument doesn't specify that it is level six. The atheist has to prove that there's a contradiction here. You can't just assert, well, well maybe there's a contradiction. Who cares? Maybe there's not a contradiction. And in fact, that's what I would say. I would say the Bible and I quoted those verses, the Bible does prove and says God has the maximal calm possible degree, the ultimate degree. And it doesn't specify. It's not like the Bible say, it says, look, anything that is possible, that's referring to whatever is maximally calm possible. He has the power to do whatever thing, maximal calm possibility that is capable of being known. 
is known by God propositionally. Um, and uh, yeah, in, in terms of the goodness, the God is all good. Whatever is capable and possible to be good, God's got it. That's what the Bible teaches. So it's perfectly consistent, provably consistent with what I said in terms of saying it's an unspecified maximal degree. I don't know what that degree is. I wouldn't know how to quantify it. Uh, well, actually, I, I would know how to do that, right? Because I would argue as a Christian that omnipotence, omniscience, and and omnibenevolence are maximal are uh, logically compossible. Um, so he, but again, even if that's not the case, then the argument doesn't rely on us having a specific number. Like, oh, well, the maximal compossible degree it's a nine out of ten for each of these factors. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, that's what God has. Whatever it is, that's what the Bible teaches God has, because the Bible doesn't specify the degrees of these either. It just says whatever is possible, whatever is the thing that uh, that God can attain or achieve, he's got it. You know, whatever power is out there, God possesses that power. Whatever little bit of uh, knowledge, the warranted true belief that God can have, God's got it. Whatever amount of goodness that exists, God's got it. That's what the Bible says. And that's perfectly consistent with my unspecified maximal degree, compossible degree argument in premise one of my argument. Okay, so uh, uh, next up, we have um, my favorite thing that I think was the most substantive rebuttal. And I wasn't totally happy with how I responded in the show. But it's this notion Jordan brought up of the no-no, right? So no, N-O, no, knowledge, or K-N-O-W. He's got, there's, he says, well, look, maybe it's possible, it's logically possible he could conceive of a person who has, who knows he has a warranted true belief, presumably in the 100% degree, I, I would assume Jordan is, the same because otherwise if it's a lesser degree well then okay we can it's possible he doesn't know and he's wrong or something but let's for the sake of argument to help the skeptic here the atheist here he has knowledge in the 100 degree jordan is trying to argue that god does not exist well since god is necessary in his possible world well since god is logically necessary and that means he has to exist in every single logically possible world that would mean, well, this guy can't know, have a warranted true belief that God does not exist in his logically possible world. So therefore, that makes God impossible. If he doesn't exist in even one logically possible world, because he's defined as being logically necessary, that means he's impossible. He doesn't exist in any logically possible world, including the actual world. And this is a rebuttal or an objection. I, I called this a canceling parody. But I realize now upon reflection, this isn't actually a parody argument because um, this person is contingent, right? So he it doesn't apply to the same structure. It doesn't parody the ontological argument. It doesn't rely on axiom S5. It's not saying this person is logically necessary and he exists in every single possible world, including the actual world. So the premises of the ontological argument are totally irrelevant to this no-no example. Instead, what it is, is this is atheist strategy number three. Basically, Jordan is denying that I have a strategy number three where he denies the deductive strength of my premise one, that it's possible 
that God exists or this real maximum great being exists. And his defeater for that is that, well, it's also logically possible that the no-no exists. Uh, so this isn't a parody argument. I was wrong about that on the show. This is actually a defeater trying to attack the deductive strength that I have as a theist for knowing that premise one is true in terms of the logical possibility of God. Now, how would I respond to this? So in the show, I took a lot of time trying to respond and say there were three strategies. So we spent most of the time, unfortunately, on the a priori and basically of that of those strategies. Travis mentions a couple of arguments, you know, such as Richard Swinburne's simplicity argument and arguments against arbitrary limits and stuff like that. That that's fine. But I was appealing to properly basic beliefs, and I was trying to pit. Look, it it comes down to well, do you really have a properly basic belief that the no no exists versus this real maximum great being? I have a properly basic belief that God exists, that it's God is possible. I do not have any properly basic belief that a no-no exists. Um, yeah, it, essentially it's like, it's impossible. You can't know, uh, you can't know that something that exi necess exists necessarily does not exist necessarily. Um, so like, it's just a contradiction in terms, uh, but that's begging the question against the no-no defeater. So without doing that, I would just say, look, my properly basic belief for me personally is provides me with a warrant of true belief that the real maximum great being is possible. I have no such uh, properly basic belief that the no-no is possible. And that's why I was at, obviously that's a subjective evidence. So that's why I had to just ask Jordan and, and David, I'm like, let's get real. For, forget about trying to just be clever for a debate. Are, are you saying you really can conceive of this no-no? And, and that sort of thing on their end. And I wanted to see what they would say on that front. But ultimately, if they say yes, that apart from me just calling them a liar or something or saying they're deluded or something, that there's nothing I can do to prove that, no, hey, I, I've got the true warranted true belief and you don't. So that's why you would have to rely on the other two strategies. And going with the third strategy, this is where Yuji Nagasawa and my approach comes in uh, so amazingly because... Yuji Nagasawa has his top-down approach. My definite, what is the thing that I could say I'm warranted? Well, look, my uh, possibility premise for the the possibility of God as I've defined him, right? The uh, necessary being with power, benevolence, and um, uh, knowledge in the maximal compossible degree, logically compossible degree. That is true by definition. It is self-evident. The statement itself entails the truth of that premise. It's a top-down approach that Dr. Yuji Nagasawa adopts. And that's what I did with my argument. So my argument is true by definition. We are automatically warranted. It is self-evident. And that's the difference. The no-no is not self-evident. You can't derive warrant from self-evidence. There's nothing in and of itself uh, that, that that's you know, the definition of a no-no entails that it is actually true and logically possible. Uh, so there's a major difference there. We have a source of provable warrant, objectively provable warrant through Yuji Nagasawa's top-down approach that doesn't apply to Jordan's no-no approach. So we can go beyond just, well, you claim you have this conception, I'm claiming I have the opposite conception. I, I grant that for a third party out in the audience, that's just there's no way to 
break the symmetry in terms of the claims. You have no idea who's lying, who's deluded, who might be telling the truth. Maybe we're both out to lunch. You're not privy to my properly basic beliefs, but you are privy to the self-evidently true nature of my definition, which entails just, it's true by definition. Look, whatever the logically possible degree is for these properties, this being, that's what this being has. So it's, it's logically possible by definition. So it's, it's got self-evident truth. The no-no is not self-evidently true. There's nothing contained in the statements or the definition of what a no-no is that entails that it's, it's true, that it's logically possible. Um, so that's a major difference there. Outside of that, we also have um, the second strategy where we can prove through external or independent objective arguments and reasoning that the the uh, that God is possible, but the no no we don't we don't have any sound arguments or reasons or evidence proving that the no no is possible in the same way. And I just want to give a few. So I, I mentioned and hinted some in the debate. Uh, so did Travis, but we never got into those. So I just want to present a few of them. So let me share my screen. So in the first place, it's important to note that there are various strategies that have come up from the 1970s, right? So on the conception side of things, if you went with just, hey, I've got a properly basic belief, my properly basic belief is right, and you can claim to have a PBB, it's a counterfeit, I don't care. Um, but if somebody objects to your properly basic belief, there have been various arguments that serve as defenses um, and that sort of thing. So let me um, I'm not going to get into those because uh, I don't care about defending against kind of objections from skeptics who say, you, yeah, you can't really um, uh, conceive of the possibility of God as a properly basic belief. Well, what I would say is uh, go to Dr. Eugene Nagasawa. He's in my sources on my blog, and he gets into various things, right, about how we can. And there's certain arguments. So, you know, various arguments and defenses in the literature, scholarly literature, uh, such as the phenomenological argument or the experience. Um, there's also the deontic argument or the flourishing life argument from Alexander Proust. These are all, all defenses. So they don't prove that God or a real maximum great being is logically possible directly, but they help to defend a theist who's saying, I know it's possible because I can conceive of it. I have a properly basic belief. And then someone will say, well, no, you can't. Here are ways to prompt the atheist to defend your properly basic belief and to prompt the atheist to maybe reconsider and introspect and say, yeah, you know what? Actually, I can conceive of this real maximum great being. It is possible that God exists. And I too have a properly basic belief. So that that's what I see for me personally. That's what I see these defenses. And you can read about those. I'm, I'm going to skip over those because what I'm, what I'm interested in is I want to provide arguments. And there are a few arguments in the literature that directly prove or warrant the truth of premise one, that God is possible. The no-no, we have no arguments that that's possible. With God and the real maximum great being, we have direct arguments proving that it is possible. So I want to show a couple of those. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so here's a great presentation. Uh, let me just make sure the sound is on. 
So this is going to present a couple of arguments and share. And it's important to note, remember, uh, David objects during the show that uh, perfect, my argument doesn't argue for perfection necessarily, just the maximal calm possible degree. And that is absolutely correct. But where he's wrong is that he thinks um, he thinks that because I'm ar not arguing for perfection, that means that my argument excludes perfection. No, if, if we have an argument proving the possibility of a perfect being or a supreme being or whatever, a, a, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent being, whatever you want to call that, that's consistent with my argument because my definition was simply a minimal definition that it includes. Look, maybe the maximal compossible degree is a perfect being. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly omnipotent. He's perfectly um, uh, knowledgeable and omniscient and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, uh, these some possibility premises argue for the perfection and that a perfect being or a supreme being, which is akin to being a perfect being and has all these perfect properties, that that's possible. And if that's true, then my first premise is true by definition, because it's, it's basically arguing for the same thing. It's saying that the, the maximal compossible degree, what is it? It's perfection. And we can prove that perfection is possible. So let's take a look at some of these arguments. Here's a couple from a great show, Capturing Christianity, uh, this is one of my favorite ones, uh, episodes where he does a whole bunch of arguments. But let's listen to a couple of arguments here, starting with Robert Maydoyle's modal perfection argument. And this is his uh, celebrated modal perfection argument, which is in the Blackwell Companion. He has two definitions here. Uh, property is, is a perfection, only if it is necessarily better to have than not. Uh, something has a property of being supreme. And this argument, if you want to read it for yourself, is on my blog for free. So uh, take a look at May Doyle's uh, Blackwell Companion chapter on the ontological argument where he discusses this, if you want to read it. If and only if it's impossible for something to be greater and impossible for there to be something else than which is not greater. Okay, so from these two definitions, uh, he has this argument. A property is a perfection only if its negation is not. Perfections entail only perfections. The property of being supremely perf uh, being supreme is a perfection. So it's possible that a supreme being exists. And he derives four in Godelian fashion from one through three. Uh, so one through three jointly entail four. Five, if it is possible that a supreme being exists, a supreme being exists. Six, so a supreme being exists. What's noteworthy about Madel's argument is that it doesn't depend on S5 or B. Uh, like the other arguments do. He instead appeals to what's called the Barkin formula in modal logic, which is that if possibly something has F, then there is something that pop that is possibly F. That's the Barkin formula in kind of a rough way. So he derives uh, five using the Barkin formula. And uh, also another argument here is going to be uh, from Sar Bernstein, which is similar. Um, and so he concludes that a supreme being exists. And if you want to go to the next slide, I'll just show you his derivation. Okay. That's how he does it. So premise two there is the Barkin formula. And he's off and running. So there you go. Yeah, this is all just super easy stuff. Everyone should just be able to read this. This. Uh... 
<laughs> Logical notation, yeah. no well, problems. Look, I mean, if you were to write these <laughs> premises out in English, it would be ridiculous. You wouldn't even be able to like hold some of these premises in your mind. It's just, it's like just doing a math equation. You know, you just, the, the, the important thing is, is just showing validity. Uh, is just showing that you can derive a conclusion from formal assumptions and premises. Okay. All right. So, yeah, uh, Bernstein's mm -hmm. arguments, which again is a demonstration of the possibility premise or an attempted one. He defines a perfection as a property that in no way detracts from a being's greatness, uh, but its complement does, its opposite does. So he, he has this argument. Suppose for reductio, it's impossible that something has all perfections. If it is impossible that something has all perfections, then there is a perfection that is sufficient for having, for not having that some, let me restart that. Two, if it's impossible that something has all perfections, then there is a perfection that is sufficient for not having some other perfection, namely the one with which it is inconsistent. If a property is sufficient for not having some perfection, then that property is sufficient for being imperfect. If a property is sufficient for being imperfect, then it is not a perfection. So there is some perfection that is sufficient for not having some perfection, followed from one and two. So there is some perfection that is sufficient for being imperfect, three and five. And then we have a, a, a contradiction here. There is some perfection that is not a perfection. And so that means our starting assumption must have been false. And so we can conclude possibly something has all perfections. So this is a reductio ad absurdum argument. The first premise is supposing, suppose for the sake of the argument, the atheists are correct and it is impossible for something to have all perfections. And then it leads to this, inevitably to this contradiction. So it's impossible for there to not be something that has all perfections. Dear good, possibly. Uh, so yeah, so um, dear goodness, uh, that kind of destroys the atheists and skeptics right there. Finally, we have another great argument. This is the one that I wanted to show people. Oh, uh, well, here's Josh Rasmussen's. I'll uh, just show that for a second. But this is about what Travis mentioned, uh, pos positive properties and, and stuff like that. Uh, positive properties don't entail negative properties. Um, absolute perfection is positive. And again, bada boom, bada bing, you get to absolute perfection is actual. Uh, so this is a great video by... Josh Rasmussen, again, uh, Capturing Christianity, uh, great resource. But here's the here's the thing that I wanted to present, a single argument, um, again, based on perfections and imperfections, but it's a simple one. I think uh, most people, it's not a technical one, but it is arguing, again, for a perfect being. And this is by Joe, Joe Schmidt. And it's important to note, he bases it on a principle, right? So the principle of sufficient reason is something I proved to be true in my contingency, sorry, contingency argument for the existence of God. I think it's part three or maybe part four where I get into the reasons in favor of the principle of sufficient reason versus against the principle of sufficient reason. Now, it's important that Joe Schmidt uses a slightly stronger version of the principle of sufficient reason. So basically, I say every concrete thing that exists has an explanation of its existence either in an external cause, because it's contingent, or in its in own internal necessity of existence. Um, Schmidt here is using a slightly stronger principle that, that says at least all contingent facts have an explanation for their, for their truth values and stuff like that. Uh, but 
he in, on that front, he doesn't argue that that's true uh, necessarily. He just says that it's possibly true. So this is what he calls the PPE principle or submission. He says, well, it's possible that um, contingent uh, a, a contingent fact or a an existent existential fact about concrete things that exist, right? Uh, have a, an explanation that is external to themselves. He just says that, look, that's a possibility. Um, so in that case, it's it's a lot weaker. He's not saying they even necessarily do have an explanation that's external to themselves, but it is possible that they could. So if you have that principle in mind, let's listen to Joe give his argument that there's a perfect being then. So that's my justification or brief defense of PPE. And now we can turn to the, the symmetry breaker. So how does PPE break symmetry? So by PPE, right, the existential fact that there are imperfect beings, and by imperfect beings, I mean beings that are not perfect, beings that are not God. By PPE, that existential fact is possibly explained all else being equal. And so we can call the fact, the existential fact that there are imperfect beings, we can call that imperfect fact, okay? And so now we're gonna consider a world in which imperfect fact is explained. Well, by PPE, the principle includes a concrete thing. We can call that concrete thing T, okay? By the non-circularity of explanation, right? T is not going to be among any of the imperfect things in the world that we're considering, right? Because if it were, then we'd have a circular explanation. We're trying to explain why there are imperfect things in that world. But every concrete thing is either imperfect, that is not perfect, or else it's perfect. And so since T is a concrete thing that's not among the perfect things in that world, it follows that T is perfect in that world. And so there's a possible world in which a perfect being exists. And in that case, a perfect being possibly exists. And by the modal ontological argument, it follows that a perfect being exists, all else being equal. So that's his argument. So that's, I think, is brilliant, right? So again, he, he's, he's saying there, there are perfect things that might exist and there are imperfect things. It, concrete things, tables, chairs, me, lions, whatever, right? So this is what he's referring to. There are existential facts about these concrete things in the universe. And he's classifying these things as imperfect, right? There's a set of all the imperfect concrete things that exist in the world. And it's possible that all of these imperfect concrete things require an external explanation as a, in terms of a concrete thing to explain the existence of all of these concrete imperfect things, the entire set of imperfect concrete things that exist, right? He's not saying that they necessarily have an explanation, but it is possible they have an explanation in some kind of concrete thing that's external to all the imperfect concrete things that exist. Well, that what would that that would make that concrete thing that exists possibly and explains all the imperfect things, the entire set of imperfect concrete things, that's a perfect concrete thing. And therefore it follows that well, it is possible given this argument that there is a perfect concrete thing, aka the Lord our God, a real maximally great being that explains the entire set of all imperfect concrete things that exist, tables, chairs that we see every day.
incredible. So, so these are some of the ways that we can get. Remember, if if it's possible that a perfect being exists, then that bada boom bada bing, that is automatically proving my premise that a real maximally great being exists. And it's just saying that what does it mean to be maximally great? It means that it's possible you're perfect kind of thing, right? Now, if there is some kind of argument that says perfect beings are impossible, my argument still could work, right? Because mine is just saying it's the maximal compossible degree. But what's incredible with these arguments is that they're saying, but no, a perfect being, a being that has all perfections, that's possible too. And we can prove it logically through the evidence. Incredible. So yeah, the no-no uh, objection, what has it got going for it? Nothing. Bupkis, uh, Zippo. Um, when it comes to God or a real maximally great being and its logical possibility, my goodness, we've got some of the world's experts working on this and proving it, that it is in fact possible. So uh, yeah, but uh, even outside of those things, remember Yujin Nagasawa and my top-down approach um, in that I was using, that it, it's true by definition, that if you forget everything else and all these arguments for perfect beings and all that, remember that my real maximally great being, whatever that is, is true by definition. It has a source of warrant from self-evidence. The statement itself or definition itself entails the truth of the possibility of this being. The no-no that Jordan supposed, there's nothing in the definition of what a no-no is that entails the truth of the possibility of it. So that's the symmetry breaker, as, as Joe was talking about there, between the no-no and the real maximum great being, a.k.a. God, in terms of what is provably logically possible or not. Um, again, outside of appealing to properly basic beliefs and conceptions, we've got objective warrant for preferring the possibility of God over the no-no. And this goes for any parody as well, such as Darren Lute, uh, who tries to say, well, it's possible that God does not exist. No, that's not true. Again, we and we have these various arguments proving that the possibility premise for God works. And because God is defined as being logically necessary, there is no logically possible world in which God does not exist. It's impossible for God not to exist um, in that on that front. And it would be the same, uh, I, the way I would approach it if somebody gave a parody argument saying, oh, well, I'll take your ontological argument and I'll just say it's possible that God, as you define him, does not exist. Say, no, it's not. No, it's impossible that God does not exist as I define him. And okay, if we take the conceptual route and I say, well, I've got a properly basic belief that it's possible God exists, uh, Darren will no doubt say, well, I've got a properly basic belief that it's possible God does not exist. Great. Well, I've got objective sources of warrant. I've got actual arguments proving you don't. He has, he has nothing, bubkiss, when it comes to proving that it's possible God does not exist. We've got these uh, major arguments proving that it is possible that God exists. And on my front, again, with my argument, the top-down Yuji Nagasawa, my source of warrant that I wanted to get through in the debate is that it's I've got self-evidence on my side. It's true by definition. Supposing, well, God does not, it's possible that God does not exist. There's no self-evidence there. There's nothing in that statement 
or the definition of God that entails or is true by definition and self, uh, proves in and of itself that it's true that it's possible God does not exist. So that's the difference. That's why theists are warranted. Atheists and skeptics are, are not. And this is actually, I, I just realized this is taking a lot longer than I thought. So shoot. Um, okay, so I'm going to run through, uh, I think I've covered most of it. Um, uh, laws of logic. Okay, well, you know what? Um, I think that's good. I, I covered the rebuttal. There, there's a bunch, there's other stuff, but I'm just going to let the debate uh, kind of stand because the, it's kind of a repeat what we go over as we watch the rest of the uh, informal discussion part. So there's some repetition. There are some things, objections that get raised that I just don't think are, are good but uh, or substantive. Like I think Jordan's no-no objection was the best that was raised in the debate. And um, the one that I was kind of disappointed disappointed with even after re-listening with my response so now i have done it i've provided my best response and it's out there for people to consider and um i'm kind of happy with that so yeah because i wanted this to be a short show under an hour and i'm already approaching 50 minutes uh i'm just going to leave it at that um if, if there is something else i missed that's important let me know in the comments and i'll respond in the comments but um I think I responded to the majority of the rebuttals that uh, Jordan raised and, and the most important ones that uh, David and Jordan brought up. So with that, have a great, uh, well, well, yeah, have a great day. I guess I'll see you in a, a couple hours with Phil Bear, Jordan and David join, uh, joining me, uh, kind of focusing on uh, discussing the debate and the other arguments, because I know Phil doesn't care for the ontological argument. So I'm assuming we're not going to really discuss too much of that. It's mostly going to be on uh, the atheist arguments. I know Phil wants to go after them on the problem of evil and the hiddenness of God. Uh, and maybe hopefully he'll say something about Travis's argument. But other than that, have a great one, guys. Take care. Okay, uh, very quickly, just a quick add-on. I forgot about something very important that Jordan was right about and that I was wrong about. So I just want to play that clip very quickly. Um, I'm going to make sure this... Okay. World versus not kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, now you're positing... So you, it sounds like you just posited laws of logic such that in some... Some configuration of laws of logic that this being is, is necessary, right? Did I understand you correctly that that's in this possible world the laws of logic are such that this being is necessary? The law, the laws of logic just are are what they are. Whatever in whatever world they exist, as they exist in this world, you know, that entails that this other thing exists. Um, yeah, like that. There's nothing incoherent, provably incoherent, about supposing that. Where, wherever the laws of logic obtain, this thing's also there. So, but, um, yeah. but why though? Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know why I should agree that that. Like, there doesn't seem to be anything in the laws of logic, as I understand them, and maybe my understanding is just limited. That tell me there has to be uh, logically necessary that there's a being that can't possibly not exist. 
Right. So it, it's not on us to explain. I could explain why kind of thing, but uh, we don't, the modal yeah. ontological argument that I gave, we don't have to explain why. We're just saying, look, it's coherent, whatever the, the why is. And again, I, I have my well, own. Okay. Well, if, if you don't have to explain why, then, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it seems like then my counter argument is a, def is a perfectly fine defeater. If I don't have to explain any okay, so that, so that's feature the, about this being uh, or why up. it exists or anything uh, like that, I can just say it exists okay. and, and this, thus shall it be so, then my no no exists. I said I'm so, therefore it is. Then. And therefore... There we go. Uh, so, so very quickly to keep this within an hour, uh, Jordan is right. I, I should have to provide, stop sharing, I should have to provide a, co a possibly coherent structure, right? So, so I'm going to answer that, right? So why is it the case that in every world where the logical law of non-contradiction obtains, God exists or this real maximum great being exists? And it's because possibly God, God's moral, morally perfect nature grounds the laws of logic. Right, or sorry, not his morally perfect nature, his logical, essentially logical nature. Uh, so the laws of logic are grounded in God, in God's nature. So that's why God has to exist wherever the laws of logic obtain, because the laws of logic couldn't obtain. They're not abstract objects like in some kind of Platonic realm. That makes no sense. And we have various arguments against um, against uh, logical Platonism uh, or moral Platonism and all these kind of Platonic views, they don't make sense. Nothing exists abstractly. They exist in a being of some sort, right? Such as a logical being and who recognizes with his mind the proposition that it's true, that the logical law of non-contradiction is true, that the logical uh, law of ex the excluded middle is true. And based on their nature and epistemic values, where they value logical. This is what entails that the laws of logic are true, and they can't exist unless a logical being like God exists to ground these laws of logic. So that's why, that's the possible, the possible or story as to how it's coherent that the, that the laws of logic, if they're true, then that necessarily entails that God must exist. And you know, we can get into arguments as to why the laws of logic can't just exist platonically. They have to exist in God or his nature and grounding. So that's the answer I would provide to Jordan. I was wrong to just dismiss it. So I, I don't have to prove it or something. I, I think I should be, come up with some kind of coherent, possible, possible story that is coherent. And I think, and I think I've just done that. That's one option that theists have to prove why is there this uh, entailment, this connection. Why is it that whenever I say, yeah, there's a logical law of non-contradiction, that's true, that that entails, well, there must be God existing in that world too. Well, it's because the laws of logic couldn't exist unless God existed. They're grounded in his logical nature. So that's my uh, add-on why. Uh, with that, I will stop talking and we will uh, enjoy the day. Yeah. <laughs>